Displaced Lytton residents prepare for an emotional return. When you round that corner, that's when it will be what normally was our village and now is a wasteland. I'm really afraid of that. What evacuees say about the help they need now. The Prime Minister makes a tantalizing promise. We'll work with the provincial government to achieve an average of $10 a day childcare. The visit that felt a lot like a campaign stop. And big changes at long-term care homes. We're now at a place where we can more fully open. The new rules for residents and their families who can't wait to get closer. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. Residents of Lytton, already reeling from losing their homes, possessions and jobs to the wildfire, say they're now facing even more uncertainty. While emergency relief has been flowing their way, some evacuees say the system is confusing and hard to access. Aaron MacArthur is live in Merritt tonight. That's where many of the evacuees are now based, Aaron, And they're telling you there is an information gap about what the next steps will look like for them. Yeah, that's right, Sophie. There, The information gap is, is so large. There are basic questions that are going unanswered a large part of the time. But more than that, there's a service gap. People say basic needs aren't getting met. When the fire spread from the area near the train tracks to homes, Megan Fandritz knew she had to go. She grabbed what she could from the cash register and drove through the flames and thick black smoke to safety. Just in really basic survival mode, like get myself out and pray to God that everyone got out. It's been more than a week since that day, and the emotional toll it's taken on her and her employees has been enormous. They just ran away from the flames um, for blocks and blocks. The, the, the smoke was so dense that they couldn't see anything. They were just running until finally a, Someone they didn't know just said, get in the car, get in the car. The small business owner wants to know what support she's getting. Evacuees are spread over more than half a dozen communities across southern BC. No one seems to know what needs to be done or what's getting done. I was given um, a voucher for some food and clothing to spend at Superstore um, and given a bottle of water and a couple of cookies for my daughter. And that's all the support I've had. Other evacuees have been given vouchers for basic necessities, but they don't seem to provide the right kind of anything. So we just have a bunch more clothes. Those, not these ones, those things back there. That's the food we got. But it's okay, because now we got some new clothes, right? Something we can eat. The Klaua Art Cafe is gone, but Fandrich has insurance. Many of her neighboring businesses did not. And no one seems to know what happens next. They need to be doing clearly written bulletins, not about how they're going to help us rebuild. We're not ready for that. Right now, we are still looking for loved ones. The provincial government quick to promise that Lytton will be rebuilt. And Thursday, the prime minister weighed in. I've had uh, many conversations already with, uh, with Premier Horgan about our partnership and our work together on uh, rebuilding. In the short term, little consolation for people who have lost nearly everything. In the future, I know that it's a strong community and we will be together and we will rebuild and everything will be okay. Yeah. But right now it's too soon. 
in the back of everyone's mind is the idea of culpability. The RCMP have already said this investigation will be lengthy and it could be years before charges are even contemplated. It is leaving people from Lytton feeling even more helpless than they already do. Chris, Sophie, back to you. Can't even imagine. All right, thanks for that. Aaron MacArthur in Merritt. A lot of speculation is on the rail operators in that area, and Canada's two major rail networks are both pledging uh, upwards of, together at least, more than $2 million in emergency relief for the village of Lytton. Both CN and CP tracks run near Lytton, and there has been widespread speculation that sparks from a passing train started the fire that destroyed the town. CN is donating $1.5 million. CP has already pledged a million. In both cases, the money will be distributed according to the needs of the community and the Lytton First Nation. CN says it's also offered to provide electrical generators and refrigerated containers, along with groceries and other necessities for residents who lost their homes and belongings in the fire. Well, when you see the devastation left behind by the Lytton wildfire, it's amazing that anything survived those flames. But the BCSPCA has managed to rescue a number of animals that were left behind, and now work is getting underway to reunite them with their owners. Our story is from CFJC News, Kamloops. As families evacuated out of wildfire zones in BC's interior work to recover, their four-legged furry family members are being brought to the SPCA's temporary evacuation centre in Kamloops. I've been in a number of animal evacuation centres and this is probably the, the best one I've ever seen because it's just so calm and quiet and removed from everything so it's great for them. And they've got a nice little bed and they'll food, water, toys. Um, and they're spaced far enough from each other that they can't see each other. Kamloops is one of two cities in B.C. that was equipped last year with supplies to set up an evacuation centre at a moment's notice. Emergency boarding is one of two key services offered each wildfire season by the SPCA. And we also have our special constables who go behind the evacuation lines and bring out animals who may not have been able to come out with their owners or perhaps their owners weren't home at the time of the evacuation order. This week, B.C. SPCA officers did gain access to Lytton to retrieve animals after a wildfire burned through the village on June 30th. The TNRD has been working closely with people behind the lines to feed and, and water the animals, but it has been a long time they've been in there, so um, many people had to leave just on a moment's notice. They didn't have time to wrangle up a cat or a dog that was running loose. Out of Lytton, dogs will be housed in the air-conditioned warehouse on Dene Drive, while cats and other small animals will be taken to the Kamloops shelter on Tronkeel Road. From there, animals will be cared for by SPCA volunteers until their owners are able to pick them up. Donations can be dropped off locally at the Kamloops SPCA branch. With more wildfire potential in the months ahead, the SPCA says it will continue to operate evacuation response care services for as long as necessary. Delana Nishaw, CFJC News. We have some breaking news to tell you about now. A mobile home park in the East Kootenai community of Elko is being evacuated due to a wildfire that began near some railroad tracks. The Caithness Mobile Home Park is located about 30 minutes east of Cranbrook. Fire crews along with helicopter and air tanker support are now on scene and the fire is burning along those railway tracks. The residents of about 50 homes have been ordered to leave for what's being called a tactical evacuation. Smoke from the fire can be seen from nearby highways 3 and 93. We have a crew en route there and we'll bring you more details as the situation develops. The cooler temperatures helping fire crews get the upper hand on a wildfire near Kamloops. 
96 properties remain under evacuation alert due to the Napier Lake fire burning near Highway 5A between Kamloops and Merritt. An 11-person crew is on scene there, which despite its lower activity is still categorized as out of control. And wildfire crews continue to battle the Canham Lake fire while nearby residents are busy preparing for the worst. Homeowners along Canham Lake Road are setting up pumps, water lines and sprinklers to protect their properties if the wind changes and pushes the fire towards them. The Canham Lake wildfire has grown to 11 kilometers but is right now burning uphill away from the homes. I've got uh, a four horse Honda pump down there and with this 300 feet of lay flat hose. I've got seven sprinklers running right now that it will run and you know on the various buildings and just trying to keep everything wet so if ashes come over, um, if they land on the roof, uh, they won't catch fire. Residents in that area are under an evacuation alert and that means they've been instructed to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like campaign time around here. The Prime Minister was in town today announcing an agreement that will lead to $10 a day regulated childcare within five years. And as Paul Johnson reports, the event had all the hallmarks of a campaign-style stop in Battleground, B.C. Welcome to our province. Oh, no, it's great to be home. It's great to be home in B.C. Watching this... You're forgiven if you mistakenly think a federal election has officially been called. In his first trip out west since the pandemic, Prime Minister Trudeau came looking like a candidate and spending like one too. This is real, tangible progress. This is what it means to be a feminist government. Trudeau and Premier Horgan came to Coquitlam's Lafarge Lake to announce a multi-billion dollar plan for the federal government to help pay for 30,000 new childcare spaces in B.C. with a targeted price of $10 a day. The Prime Minister confirmed the program will be paid for with more debt and didn't lose his step when interrupted by this heckler. Shame on you and start working harder on it on unceded territories. Jagmeet, welcome to the Couch Mallee and thanks for being here. But Trudeau wasn't the only federal leader hunting for B.C. votes in the expected fall election. The NDP's Jagmeet Singh was on Vancouver Island calling for more action on affordable housing. So we are committed to making sure we fix this problem. Reality is, under six years of Justin Trudeau being in government, things have gotten worse. How are you guys doing? Good, how are you? Not too bad. And the pre-election action also underscores the where as opposed to the what that they're saying. Crashing the lunch scene at a white spot in the Tri-Cities is a savvy move when there's two important ridings here. One that you need to keep and another you hope to flip. You got my vegetables in there? Yes. Plus the added attraction of getting to dine al fresco with John Horgan. <laughs> Can you pass the triple O sauce, Mr. Prime Minister? In Coquitlam, Paul Johnson, Global News. Meantime, we also heard today from Jody Wilson-Raybould, who says fall election or not, this term will be her last as Vancouver Granville MP. Wilson-Raybould says her decision comes after reflecting on her own experiences in Ottawa. Canada's first Indigenous Justice Minister says Parliament has changed significantly over her six years. She went as far as calling it a disgraceful triumph of harmful partisanship. Her time as MP will likely be defined by her role in the SNC-Lavalin affair. 
Canada's Ethics Commissioner found Prime Minister Trudeau improperly tried to influence her to intervene in an ongoing criminal case against the construction giant. She went on to win re-election despite running as an independent. Turning to COVID-19 in our province now, we have 59 new cases in B.C. and 649 active cases. 74 people are in hospital, 19 of them are in ICU. Sadly, we've had one more death. And on the vaccination front, 78.4% of people aged 12 and older have had one dose. 40% have had both doses. Keith Baldry joins us with more. Keith, we saw Dr. Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, back to a briefing today announcing some new COVID-related changes when it comes to long-term care. Yeah, no sector has been hit harder by the pandemic than long-term care. That's where the vast majority of deaths have occurred, tragically. And almost from the beginning, they've been locked down more than any other uh, facility. And again, uh, restrictions ease somewhat to allow minimal visits and doing it very awkwardly. But today, some major changes and long-awaited ones for people who reside there and who visit people there were announced today by Dr. Henry and Minister Dix. Again, unscheduled visits are now allowed. You don't have to make appointments. There's no limits on the number of visitors bringing extended family. Non-fully immunized visitors in staff, though, must wear masks. And on-site uh, social events, such as summer barbecues, uh, parties, larger bingo games, and mixing uh, people from different facilities can now proceed. A whole different world awaits the people in those facilities. Minister Dix, though, pointed out today, uh, people who work there are required to be vaccinated as well. And if they don't get vaccinated, there are steps they have to take. Long-term care and assisted living workers will be required to report vaccination status to their employer. Workers that are not fully vaccinated will be required to wear a mask at work and be tested for COVID-19 using regular rapid tests. Volunteers and personal services providers entering long-term care settings must be fully vaccinated. Masks will be required for visitors who are not fully vaccinated. Masks will not be required for visitors who are fully vaccinated, except when traveling through common areas of a care home. So again, it's all about vaccinations. And really, the vast majority of people who work in long-term care have been vaccinated. And again, we're, our vaccination rate, as you pointed out, Sophie, continues to climb up, uh, approaching 80% now of one dose. So good news in the long-term care sector. This will bring relief to thousands of people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. It was a very controversial call that's now a human rights complaint. VPD called to a bank putting two customers, including a 12-year-old girl, in handcuffs. Employees suspected they were up to no good, but that was a huge mistake. And now the officers might pay for it, too. That's next on the News Hour. Canadians get a new option for cheap flights into the U.S. That's coming up on the News Hour. And a surprise in the mailbox for a couple who thought they'd never see their money again. Consumer Matters coming up later. Right now, though, two Vancouver police officers are facing discipline for arresting an Indigenous man and his 12-year-old granddaughter. The pair are handcuffed as they tried to open a bank account. Now, as Catherine Urquhart reports, the officers involved are being accused of misconduct under the Police Act. Two Vancouver police officers are facing possible discipline as a result of an Indigenous man and his granddaughter being arrested at a Bank of Montreal branch in downtown Vancouver. That incident happened back in December of 2019. Maxwell Johnson was trying to open an account for his 12-year-old granddaughter when he was asked to produce ID. After handing over his Indian status card, the teller indicated there was a problem and called 911 to report a fake ID. VPD officers arrived and handcuffed the two. 
Now, the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner says an investigation was done with Victoria Police Chief Del Manic as the disciplinary authority. A source told Global News that Manic found the allegations unsubstantiated. Then the OPCC, which disagreed with the result, appointed retired Judge Brian Neal as discipline authority. Since then, Neal has determined there will be possible discipline. That process expected to happen in the coming weeks. What could that mean for the two VPD officers? Well, it's possible that there could be suspensions. Also, it's possible that they will be asked to take additional training or perhaps even apologize to Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. They call it the greatest outdoor show on earth and not even a pandemic is going to stop it this year. It is different to come and experience live music and live events. A sneak peek at the Calgary Stampede to see how they're going to handle COVID-19. Also ahead, a heartbreaking account of the ambulance failure in the middle of the heat wave. A little bit of extra volume here on the Columbia Street on route to southbound Botello Bridge after clearing a very brief police incident. Is buying a home still possible? CIBC Mortgage Advisors will show you how. With a plan unique to your ambition, they'll help find your home. CIBC Mortgages, ambitions made real. I'm Trish Wilson in Global One at the Botello Bridge. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. On Global News Hour at 6. An update now to a recent News Hour story involving a Vancouver couple who'd been desperately trying to get their money back from a roofing company. For 10 months, Maria and Fritz Morshek were waiting to get their deposit return for work that was never done. When they hit a roadblock, they contacted Consumer Matters and Drua, who joins us now with the new development. And Thanks, Chris. If you recall, this goes back to September when the Morshecks heard a knock at their door from a company called Sunset Roofing and Construction. The couple handed over a $2,500 deposit for a roof over, but the company never showed up. The Morshecks were out hundreds of dollars. Consumer Matters got involved and contacted the co-owner of Sunset Roofing, Levi Melanson, who told us he would give the money back to the couple in installments. The Morsheks finally received some of their money, $500, but then less than 24 hours after our story aired about the couple's misfortune, we got a call from Maria Morshek. To her surprise, the remaining $2,000 was returned. There was a doorbell ring and uh, my husband went to look who it was and there was a young man there and he handed them an envelope with money. And he said that uh, he was just learning the business and uh, handed them like the envelope with the money and there was $2,000 in there. Then we thank it all to Anne and for to Global News. On our own, we wouldn't have gotten any money back. And we are so help, happy we could help her. Again, when it comes to renovations of any kind, do your homework on the company, visit them at, at their office, check references, their education and training. Don't rush into anything and know who you are doing business with. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Great work, Anne. 
Low-cost air carrier Flair is expanding with more flights set to take off from YVR to the U.S. this fall. The Edmonton-based airline will be offering service from Vancouver to California, Vegas and Phoenix starting October 31st. It will also fly Abbotsford to Vegas. The new routes will start between $79 and $109 one way, plus fees for every service you use, such as carry-on and luggage fees and seat selection. Tickets go on sale next week. We think Canadians have been paying too much for too long. And finally, they've got an opportunity to actually enjoy the sorts of low fares that everywhere else in the world experiences. Canadians have been denied that, and Flair is here to liberate the lives of Canadians, allowing people to fly more, get with their friends and family, go on holidays at reasonable prices. The airline has eight planes in its fleet, up from just three in May. The carrier is set to acquire three new Boeing 737 MAX 8 jets this fall. The Calgary Stampede returns this evening following an aggressive COVID-19 reopening plan in Alberta. Various events are set to take place with differing restrictions. And Global's Jacqueline Wilson joins us live now with a preview. Jacqueline, I grew up there. I know this is a huge party. And this year, there's a lot riding on the Calgary Stampede. Chris, it certainly is. And yahoo to you for being a Calgarian. That is absolutely wonderful. Most people know that it's been two years since the last greatest outdoor show on earth. But with Alberta's open for summer plan and most of our restrictions being lifted, this stampede is a go, and certainly other cities across Canada are going to be watching closely. But that's beside, of course, the 3,500 fans that were in the arena for the Montreal Canadian Stanley Cup run. The stampede really is the first major event in Canada. And event planners across the country are looking to see what the do's and don'ts are. Canada has been watching other countries move forward with their events uh, and in the same way Canadians will be looking to the stampede to see what worked, what was as wonderful as expected, what brought people together safely, what felt perhaps less, uh, less engaging than they had wanted it to be, um, what was a flop and what was a fit. Christina Barnes with the Calgary Stampede says they are expecting fewer ticket sales this year and of course knowing that everyone who normally comes might not feel comfortable this year. But to increase safety, the midway is spaced out with 25% fewer rides compared to a normal year. And to get into Nashville North, which is the big beer gardens on the midway, is actually digital queuing this year. Guests will need to show proof of vaccination or they'll need to take an on-site rapid test. We are in a sense a trailblazer in this space and that's why we've been so focused on on doing it the right way engaging all of the experts and we really have had the advantage of some amazing experts to support us through this and I did speak to an infectious disease expert today, and she said the medical community is also really going to be watching the Calgary Stampede. You know, viral spread, especially of the variants, hasn't been tested in a big event like this. So this is certainly going to be a test for the viral spread. And I should say the parade starts tomorrow morning, and that is the official kickoff. Stampede goes until July 18th. All right, Jacqueline, thanks for the uh, sneak peek and party safe out there over the next 10 days. It's going to be fun no matter what, I think. <laughs> All right, Jacqueline Wilson reporting in Calgary for us. You're missing home right now. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. All right, still ahead, the ruling that could stop a BC mega project in its tracks. We're not going to back down on protecting our rights. 
how Blueberry River First Nations could preserve its land and prevent the Site C Dam from ever operating. But first, tragedy at a Tim Hortons parking lot, how a police dog and a suspect were killed. Good evening. Traffic is steady in both directions over here on Highway 99 to and from the Massey Tunnel. Keep in mind there are lane closures for overnight maintenance between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The Independent Investigations Office is investigating a police-involved shooting in Campbell River. Police say just before 9 this morning, they tried to stop a man on an outstanding warrant. He fled, but was found a short time later in the parking lot of a Tim Hortons. A canine officer boxed the suspect's car in and a fight followed. RCMP say during that confrontation, a police service dog was stabbed to death. The officer was also injured. The suspect was shot and killed. They'll um, conduct a forensic examination of the scene. They will also canvas for video, canvas for witnesses, begin to speak to witnesses, um, begin to conduct examinations um, of the forensic evidence that is gathered. Um, and that will go on over a period of time <clears throat> as we determine, find out new stuff. We will go down different uh, avenues of investigation that become obvious. The veteran police dog was named Gator. Gator started with the force in 2016. He was credited with everything from helping to arrest a suspect with a knife to rescuing a worm picker in distress. Vernon RCMP are hoping the public might help them find a 60-year-old man missing under suspicious circumstances. Rory McDonald was last seen on May 16th in Vernon. His family reported him missing two days later. The Vernon RCMP Serious Crime Unit believes McDonald's disappearance involves foul play. Police are also looking for two vehicles believed to have been involved in the disappearance. A 2002 Volkswagen Passat, spray-painted black, and a 2004 gray Honda Accord. They're looking for anyone who may have spotted these vehicles in the Okanagan anytime between May 16th and May 21st. If you have information, you're asked to call the Vernon RCMP Serious Crime Unit. The man held in custody after a crash that killed a child in downtown Vancouver has been released as the investigation continues. And we are learning more about the family who lost their toddler. A GoFundMe page has identified the victim as 23-month-old Ocean. Ocean died when one of the two vehicles involved in a crash at Smythe and Hornby jumped the curb, hitting her and her father. The child's mother, known as Star, witnessed the accident. Her father, Michael, has had several surgeries to place a plate in his arm and a steel rod in his leg. He is expected to remain in hospital for an extended period of time. The couple's West End community quickly rallied to support them. A GoFundMe has now surpassed $43,000. For the first time, the Assembly of First Nations will be led by a woman. Roseanne Archibald was elected after the fifth ballot when her top opponent conceded the race. Archibald staged a come-from-behind victory, having placed second in the first three rounds of voting behind frontrunner Reginald Bellrose. Archibald is the former Ontario Regional Chief of the AFN. She was the first woman and the youngest chief of the Tequa Tegamu Nation at just 23 years old. 
Well, First Nations groups and governments are still trying to fully comprehend the impact of a landmark B.C. Supreme Court ruling, one that means governments cannot authorize development projects that violate inherent rights promised under Treaty 8. In the immediate future, that's raised uncertainty about the massive Site C project, and Ted Chernecki shows us why. What if, when they finally finished building Site C, they couldn't legally flood the valley? By BC Hydro's own admission, it needs almost 90 permits to still be approved. Filling the reservoir means flooding the traditional territories of the Blueberry First Nation. In a landmark ruling, BC Supreme Court has just said the treaty their elders signed 122 years ago specifically protects their way of life, and that's not happening because industrial development has gone too far. So, the province may not continue to authorize activities that breach the promises included in the treaty. That could include filling the reservoir. Now there's a big question mark in place out there. Um, and and the, the end result of this thing is that the costs are, are going to go up again on it, you know, because any kind of delay is going to be a problem. And, you know, we're not going to back down on protecting our rights. To reinforce that point, First Nations gathered on the steps of BC Supreme Court today to drive this point home. We are not against industry. If this is done right, there is plenty of work for everyone. In a statement, BC Hydro maintains that the court decision does not have any impact on project construction and work continues. To date, benefit agreements have been reached with most of the Treaty 8 First Nations that will be impacted by the project. And while Treaty 8 clearly allows for economic development, Site C is different, as neither Blueberry or West Moberly First Nations ever approved of it because of what it would do to their land. Now they feel they're a victim of a provincial strategy of make it too big to fail. Blueberry argued that they can't just continue approving things while they're trying to have discussions. And that's what BC and BC Hydro have been doing. They've been approving projects. Christy Clark stood up and said, we got to uh, push this project past the point of no return. Today, First Nations said the Horgan government can prove it's serious about reconciliation by not appealing the court ruling. It has until July 29th to decide. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Another family is coming forward with a horror story about long waits for paramedics and the loss of a loved one during the heat wave. A 71-year-old man suffering the effects of the record-breaking temperatures died after his wife was unable to get help. And as Jordan Armstrong reports, his daughter puts the blame squarely on the system. I'm so angry that he had to go and he didn't want to go. And it's not their fault, it's the system's fault. Savita Ahuja says her father, Yan Goel, was the type of guy who would help anyone. But when the 71-year-old needed immediate medical help during the heat wave, Ahuja says the ambulance came too late. She called them at 7.02, they showed up at 8.33. I don't know how my mom is ever going to get these images out of her mind, I don't. Langley Hospital is just 10 minutes away. Ahuja says her mom did CPR and would have driven him to the emergency room herself, but she couldn't lift him. She ran up and down the street screaming for help from the neighbors because he had lost his pulse. And my mom's blaming herself. My mom keeps blaming herself and it's not fair. Why should she blame herself? She says her dad seemed fine until Sunday, June 27th, when he fell ill. 
with what they now suspect was heat stroke. BC ambulances said the call volume that weekend was unprecedented. Still, the organization is being criticized for not doing enough to prepare. Last week, COO Darlene McKinnon apologized to families who waited too long for an ambulance. But she also said this. I think that we've done a very good job in the response. A good job of what? You killed my dad. Ahuja, who lives in Goa, India, says her neighbors there cannot believe something like this could ever happen in Canada. She adds the Horgan government needs to fix the overwhelmed ambulance service, even though for her family, it comes too late. I keep thinking about all the future families that are going to suffer and be hurting just as much as me right now. He wasn't a dad to me. He was my best friend. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Up ahead, success and resilience in sports. We had to share the lived experiences of their lives. Where Canada's First Nations athletes are getting the recognition they deserve. And a big birthday for Ronald McDonald House, celebrated with cupcakes by all the families who found comfort there. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. All eyes are on the skies as we watch more thunderstorms roll through the region. Christy joins us now with the latest in the weather forecast. Christy. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's pretty scary when we see this. Basically, southern and central B.C. just exploded in thunderstorms today with severe thunderstorm watches and warnings. Here's a look at the latest right now. We have two warnings in place. One is for the Boundary region as well as one for the Nicola area. You can see them highlighted in red there. But the key here is it does bring rain, but it's very localized, heavy rain. The other part, it, of course, brings thunder or lightning. And you can see just in the last sort of 15 minutes, we're talking about a close to 200 lightning strikes, so uh, thousands throughout the afternoon hours. So definitely a scary scenario. Uh, of course, if you were to have a thunderstorm in the region, you would want to make sure that you head indoors to keep you and your family safe. Now, tomorrow, the action is expected to be in the Caribou and Central Interior. We're not expecting it at this point across southern BC. Should be mainly sunny, although you're still dealing with a fair amount of smoke, especially in Kamloops. South Coast region, you'll see some cloud cover through the morning hours, but otherwise, we still have no rain in the forecast as far as we can see other than those isolated thunderstorms in through the interior regions but for our region it just continues to be hot and sunny now here's a quick look at your central windows weather window for tonight this is a shot from tofino with a hazy tofino as you can see it looks like smoke but that was the humidity in the air so thank you to farzine for sending that one to us all right so Ronald McDonald House, very special day today. They're celebrating seven years of being on the grounds at BC Children's Hospital as it continues, of course, to serve hundreds and hundreds of families who have hospitalized children throughout this pandemic. Now, today, for the first time in over a year, children were able to once again play on the giant slide, that yellow slide in the middle of the living room. The slide and other common areas have actually been closed since March of last year because of the pandemic. So this is pretty exciting. And of course, no party is complete without cake or in this case cake cupcakes last night families got together and they baked and decorated the cupcakes in honor of the anniversary now ronald mcdonald house is home to more than 2,000 families with six children every year and they need your help now more than ever all this month ronald mcdonald house is asking for 20 dollars in donations and this can be made by texting home to one uh four 
1-800-795-5678. You can also make a donation online uh, and just going to the birthday wish list section. All right, guys. So pretty great organization, that's for sure. And they need their help more than ever. Super easy to donate. Confetti cannons and cupcakes. I'm on board. Yeah, me too. For sure. Thanks very much for that, Christy. All right, Squire is here now. What do you have coming up? Well, we're going to talk to you, uh, the Canucks Director of Amateur Scouting, Todd Harvey, about the upcoming draft. Also, I'm going to tell you and show you why, as a sports fan, it's advantageous to have Tom Brady living in your city because when he does, all your teams win, not just your football team. All right, <laughs> intriguing. That's true, actually. Also coming up tonight, Canada's Sports Hall of Famers, who had to overcome a lot more than most athletes, finally getting the recognition they're due. Squire's tie. I feel like we should just get a really good <laughs> no. shot. No. Just like a full shot. Like a I was shot. I was so <laughs> I was so rushed that I tied my tie too long. I think it would be too long for even me. How can you live with yourself? <laughs> I don't know. Look at that. See, thing. That is too long. What? Pretend you didn't see that, folks. I'm just gonna stand like this <laughs> my now. Eyes. I know I would have retied it, but I the commercial break wasn't long enough. I'm sorry. Uh, the NHL draft is uh, July 23rd. The, uh, that's the first round, anyway. The uh, Canucks um, will have the ninth pick overall, unless they trade it. I don't think they will, but that's what their position is right now. Ninth overall actually hasn't been bad for this team in the past. Bo Horvat was ninth overall. Hall of Famer Cam Neely, whom they foolishly traded too soon, was also ninth overall. Uh, ironically, their head of amateur scouting, Todd Harvey, was also drafted ninth overall. I think by Dallas. But this draft year will be unlike any other for scouts and teams because of the pandemic. There wasn't much hockey for NHL scouts to scout this year. Leagues either played short seasons or no seasons at all. It makes this year's draft unpredictable for everyone. I think so. Um, you know, last year at the draft, we just watched, you could almost call the names that were going to go. This year, I, I, that's going to be a lot tougher. That's because a lot of scouting had to be done on video or watching games on television, which doesn't give you the whole picture. Having video this year was tough with the skating a little bit. And I found uh, with, the, with the, you know, the play away from the puck, it, it was tough to kind of see the whole game and, and what that player is doing. Picking ninth overall, the Canucks might have a shot at Port Moody forward Ken Johnson, who they were able to scout at the University of Michigan this season. You can tell right away he's he's got it. He's got this. He's got the skills. You know his skating's really come along this year, and I think his. I went. I got down actually to see them Michigan live this year, and um, you know I was pretty impressed. Whether it's Kent Johnson or someone else, whoever they pick this year likely won't play right away, but they are excited that 2019 first-round pick Vasily Podkolzin will be in Vancouver this coming season. The, the one thing that I really like about him is how he goes in that. He, he goes, he's old school. He goes harder to the net, and he don't care if he's taking the goalie out or not, but he's trying to put the puck in the cage. And, um, you know, he's got, he, you know, he's got great... Great hockey sense. He's, he can kill penalties. He can play, you know, he's big and strong down low. Um, and I, I really think he's going to come in and fill a big need for us. You guys find it warm in here? 
long tie is actually working it out for some things. Handy. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's now official. The city of Vancouver will be hosting a Formula E auto race next summer in the streets around Yale Town. The race itself is scheduled to be on July 2nd. Now, these are the electric cars, and Vancouver will be the 10th race in what is supposed to be a 16-race season. And it'll be the first time, I guess, we're racing in Canada, this type of racing, since Montreal uh, four years ago. It's also going to be the first street race held in Vancouver since the Molson Indy left after the 2004 race. Formula E cars can do around 280K, so these things can move, and the races last about 45 minutes. The Vancouver Whitecaps have now gone eight straight games without a win. Last night, they lost to Salt Lake 4-0. It only brings up more questions about the future of head coach Mark DeSantos. But maybe because they're having the play out of Utah, it's logistically a nightmare to move out a coach and move another one in. At least until they get back to Vancouver, he might be safe. But any more games like last night, and it might not matter where they're playing out of. First shot is blocked, and then Julio! And it's piling on now, 4-0 RSL. Do you feel that you are the right person to be coaching the Vancouver Whitecaps right 100% yes. But it's Perfect. another question to ask somebody else, you know. Justin Miram swings it back in. It's on Hassal. But it's my job as a coach to, to pick them up. I, I believe in them. My work here every day in training, I see them working hard. I see them showing up. I see them giving the best that they have. Uh, and that's my job here, and I'm going to keep on doing with all the passion that I have. Wimbledon today, Ash Barty, the number one seed from Australia, taking on Angelique Kerbers. And as we mentioned yesterday, it's been a long time since an Australian woman has won Wimbledon, not since 1980, Yvonne gone. But Barty's going to get her chance because she won this in straight sets. She'll take on Karolina Pliskova in the finals. And, of course, tomorrow it's Shapovalov against... Novak Djokovic in the men's semifinals. I think that starts around 8 o'clock our time. But check your local listings, as they say. This is how today's ended. All right. The Tampa Bay Lightning, of course, have now won two Stanley Cups in a row. And a lot of people are saying that obviously this is a great organization. They've drafted all their key players. They filled in the right players around those stars. Credit goes to management and the coaching staff. But how about... The Tom Brady factor. Yes, Brady is not just the greatest quarterback of all time, but he is the greatest good luck charm for whatever city he's playing. Let me show you what I mean. When he was in Boston as the quarterback of the Patriots, they won six Super Bowls. The Red Sox broke a curse and won four World Series. The Bruins won the Stanley Cup, as we all know, and the Celtics won an NBA title. Now, last March, he signs in Tampa Bay. Look what's happened since he's been in Tampa Bay. The Bucks have won a Super Bowl. The Rays made the World Series last year but didn't win, but they still made it. And the Lightning have won two Stanley Cups. Golden touch. So when he's 65, the Lions should offer him a contract. Even if he doesn't play, just get him, <laughs> here, him here. And the Canucks will probably win the Stanley Cup. Also, we have to factor in Jordan Armstrong's dad. Jordan Armstrong's yeah. dad, yes, Grant. Yeah. Who was coached around here for years, was a GM in the Western Hockey League, and now he's won two Stanley Cups as a scout with the Mm -hmm. Tampa Bay Lightning. Doing some right down there for sure. All right, thanks, Squire. Next up, Hall of Fame athletes who broke down barriers that go far beyond their sport. 
Canada's Sports Hall of Fame is preparing to launch two massive projects. Both will highlight Indigenous sporting achievements and the role sports can play in reconciliation. Global's Cami Kepke reports the movement goes beyond the walls of the museum. From Tom Longfoot to the First Sisters to Brian Trottier, Canada's Indigenous athletes have an incredible history of success and resilience. Now Canada's Sports Hall of Fame is going beyond its walls to share their stories. We had to share the lived experiences of their lives. Um, seven of the Indigenous Hall of Famers are residential school survivors. So, you know, Wilton Littlechild, it was an impactful conversation. One day we spoke to him about it and, you know, he talked about sport and he said, sport saved my life in residential school. The hall is in the early stages of a 10-year plan that aims to amplify Indigenous voices in sport. The Indigenous Sport Heroes Education Experience is a first-of-its-kind multimedia book that highlights 14 Indigenous Hall of Famers and prompts conversation about equity and inclusion through the lens of sport. Videos, artifacts and stories pop up throughout each exhibit. Brian Trottier was the heart and soul of a New York Islanders team that won four consecutive Stanley Cups in the early 1980s. A second program, Beyond the Win, will see Indigenous Hall of Famers attend virtual and in-person educational programs in K-12 schools across Canada. Little Child himself will kick off the program by meeting with students in his home community of Masquachis in the fall. It comes as a new wave of Indigenous Canadian athletes fight for change within their respective sports and society. Terry Price spoke about his mother's election as chief of their First Nation during the Stanley Cup final. Bridget Laquette and Jocelyn LaRock are fighting for First Nations visibility and women's hockey with the PWHPA. And Michael Linkletter is transitioning from pro basketball to Olympic analyst. The Indigenous Sport Heroes Education Experience drops online on August 9th. But the Hall hopes to open a physical exhibit here in downtown Calgary by the end of next year, with the ultimate goal of reaching 5 million youth over the span of the seven-year project. Cami Kepke, Global Sports. August 9th, another reason to visit Calgary. You know, if you don't make it <laughs> out there for Stampede. Yahoo. <laughs> Yahoo! Is your house, your, the house you were born in, is that now a historical site in Calgary? Oh, yes. <laughs> How dare you? Stop on the bus tour, isn't it? Heritage Park, it's, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night, all.